0: Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati-Nelson. Today we're going to talk about what's happening to the German language. Is it cause for concern? Senior producer Dina El-Sayed explains. Hardly a sentence
1: is spoken in German cities these days without English being mixed in. Public broadcaster ARD recently poked fun at the lingual blend in its comedic program Extra rat Its title is a case in point. The
2: host
1: jokes that Denglish, as the German-English hybrid is called, is good for your career.
2: He then plays an exchange between
1: an employee and his manager at the office. Experts say English is the main foreign language influencing German over the past seven decades. The hybrid is used by German businesses, German scientists and even at the highest levels of the German government. Critics of Denglish say it's confusing to the many Germans who don't speak English. They worry that it marginalizes the German language. But others argue the angst over Denglish is overblown.
0: That was senior producer Dina El Sayed. Today, we have two guests who will talk about Denglish and whether it's a good or bad thing. In the studio is Anatole Stavanovich, who is an English linguistics professor at the Free University of Berlin. Welcome.
2: Happy to be here.
0: And joining us via Zoom from Dortmund from the Verein Deutsche Sprache, or German Language Society, is Oliver Baer. Welcome, Oliver.
3: Hello there.
0: <laughs> Oliver, tell me a little bit about your Verein.
3: We're a non-profit organization. We have 37,000 members worldwide. We are not a single-purpose organization with one homogenous party line. We're rather more a a grassroots movement. We have a range of of opinions amongst members, including everything about (laughs) (laughs) English.
0: Well, we're going to hear about that here in a bit. Is the main priority of your society to basically preserve the German language or keep it from sort of disappearing, as many languages are.
3: In a way, yes. You see, we support and promote the development of our language, and we work to maintain the mother tongues, and I use the plural there, as an essential for society. Uh, We consider the use of the English very much uh, an attempt to facelift German in itself, which is in itself a minor issue. Yeah, it's the tip of an iceberg.
0: <laughs> well, we'll talk more about that iceberg in a minute. As we heard in Dina's story, we live in a globalized world with a global economy in which English serves more or less as a universal language. So, Oliver, let me just ask you this question before I ask Anatol the same thing. Do you think it makes sense to have English and German, considering it is the universal language, more or less?
3: Well... You see, I'm a business engineer, I'm not a linguist. Uh, i am specialized in industrial marketing. I've been in business in Johannesburg, South Africa for 13 years. And while I was there, I discovered the intrinsic value of my mother tongue when native speakers of English repeatedly commissioned me to write English copy for them. Why, I asked. And they said, because you use my language in ways I hadn't thought of. So, my use of language is colored by my experience in business. And I ask you to kindly pardon it; it has become a bit rusty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anatol, what do you think? Does it make sense to have English uh, more or more English and German, given the fact that it's a globalized economy?
2: Well, it's not so much a question about uh, whether it makes sense. Uh, borrowing, linguistic borrowing is a—you might say—it's a force of nature. It's always been there. There are no languages that don't borrow. There are languages that have a self-image, like French, that pretend that they don't borrow. But if you look at the actual usage, of course, that's never the case. But, you know, as you said, English is the language of globalization. There are historical reasons for this that you might like or not like, but now we have the situation where that's a fact and that most new technologies, most new social practices, most new phenomena come with an English name attached. And so it's very natural to use that English name uh, initially and what we see in linguistic borrowing in when German borrows from English, but also in all other borrowing situations, is that these borrowed words don't always stick around. The users of the language sometimes replace them with uh, their own inventions, and they sometimes don't. Uh, and after a few decades, certainly after a few centuries, you can't even distinguish which word was originally a loanword word and which was uh, sort of created from the language's own resources. So in a sense, it's an artificial uh, distinction, and in a sense, it's also futile um, to fight this.
0: I'm sorry, you were about to say something, Oliver. I think, right?
3: Yeah, we're now entering into a phase of decoupling. Let's not forget that decoupling from globalization. So we have a number of reasons not to give up, but to rethink globalization, and uh, this has ramifications even for languages. You know, let me remind you of the marriage of Danna and Chrysler got married, then divorced, and that cost Daimler-Benz $2.4 billion, mainly due to enforcing a corporate culture with English as the common language. Now, what that meant was that, in effect, the older hands at Daimler in Stuttgart were excluded from contributing their expertise because they just sat there keeping quiet rather than get caught up in misunderstandings or to make fools of themselves in a foreign language. You know? One example uh, the other way around. Audi successfully ad- advertised in England, in America, in South Africa, Fortschritt durch Technik. They didn't use any English words there, Progress Through Technology or something. You see, you don't give up a USP unless you want to do sales.
2: These are two very different uh, phenomena. In the first case, you know, which language an international company chooses uh, to use internally, which language or languages, is a choice that that company must make. It really has nothing to do with um, Linguistic borrowing or the influence of English on German or the death of the German language. That's, you know, companies will do whatever they want to do. And in a different way, that's true of Audi. I mean, Audi didn't use German just because they didn't want to use English. They used Vorsprung durch Technik. They used this German language in order to evoke particular stereotypes associated with German, namely... Uh, you know, the stereotype that I don't even know if it's true any longer, that Germany has very good engineers and that German engineering is the best in the world and that German cars are the best in the world. That was the idea of using this slogan. It was not some kind of a language purism. Uh, It it wasn't an attempt at language purism. It was just, uh, you know, that's playing with language in the same way that uh, the so-called Denglish is often a play with languages. Uh, I think we have to keep this uh, distinct from actual, um, you know, the development of the language as a whole.
0: Anatole, does American English have more of an influence or British English when we're talking about Danglish?
2: Um, I mean, you can distinguish different phases uh, of linguistic borrowing uh, uh, you know, in the history of the German language from different languages and also from different um, varieties of English for different reasons. At the moment, I don't think you can really say that any particular national variety of English has a particularly large influence. It's really the English of globalization that is influencing German and also all other, you know, big languages. In a sense, it's a good sign that we're talking about German borrowing from English because a language that were to stop borrowing in an age of globalization, I mean, that would be one thing that would put a language in uh, a danger of disappearance. The, the reason that German is very much alive is also evidenced by the fact that it borrows and very effortlessly integrates uh, linguistic material from English.
0: Do we have a sense of how many words, English words, are actually in German? I mean, are we talking about twenty-five percent? Are we talking about less?
2: It's, uh, it's really difficult to put a number on this because it could mean several different things. Um, you could count the number of loan words in a dictionary like the duden, that would underestimate the number of uh, English words actually being used because, of course, it takes uh, a few years before a word is actually included in the dictionary. Dictionary make us typically wait to see if a word sticks around. Um, You could look at the occurrence of English words in a text and then it would depend very much on which texts you choose from which domain they are. You know, linguists have tried to sort of mix all these different uh, criteria and it turns out that German isn't actually a language that borrows particularly intensely. There are many languages that borrow much more. So, you know, any percentage that you put on this is uh, not really interpretable.
0: What about social media? Does that have an impact on Danglish?
2: I think it's reasonable to assume that that's the case because, uh, for two reasons. First of all, because there is a global communication aspect uh, to social media. Because global communication has become so effortless, people communicate internationally much more. Young people ha- may have friends on social media that live in other countries, English-speaking countries or non-English-speaking countries, and English would typically be the language they would use to communicate, which means that actually the sort of um, English language skills among the young population are much higher than they've ever been. Uh, And that's going to make it a little bit easier to borrow um, from English because uh, borrowing always requires one person or a group of people to use a word from another language for the first time in their own language. And then you can see whether it catches on. And everybody who copies these people doesn't have to speak the language from which the word was borrowed. I don't have to speak English in order to use an English loan word in German, but I do have to speak a little bit of English at least Uh, And I have to have a communicative situation in which I use English in order to come up with the idea to borrow a word. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that social media will, as a particular component of globalization, will have played a part in intensifying borrowing. But as I said, you know, we shouldn't imagine uh, the German language being flooded with English loanwords. That's clearly not the case. If you look at any text in German, uh, you know, 90% uh, to 99% of the words, depending on which text type you're looking at, are going to be German words.
3: Oliver, your thoughts? And that's what I think. We first of all should uh, agree. Uh, there's a difference between borrowing words, which is a normal thing between languages. I'm on your side there. On the other hand, English uh, stupid words like public viewing. You know, are we discussing that or are we discussing the normal pro- uh, yeah, procedures? Okay. Sure, Oliver, you know?
2: but cases like public viewing, where the dominant meaning in German is one that is very marginal in uh, English-speaking contexts. That is a normal part of borrowing. Borrowing isn't a one-to-one copying from another language. People will take linguistic material from another language, but as soon as the borrowing has taken place, that word becomes public viewing has become a word of German and it's going to have its own history of meaning development in German. And in some cases, this leads to a marginal. Meaning from the source language becoming the dominant meaning in the borrowing language, and then you get this feeling that in some cases, even you know, like the word "handy" for a mobile phone, you have a word that doesn't have that meaning at all in the source language. You get these uh, things because you're borrowing a word, and as soon as you you don't really borrow, I guess borrowing is the wrong term. It's more like taking. Um, yeah. You you don't steal it either because the source language <laughs> still has it, but you know, you, you, you there is an initial copying event where you copy this word, but then the speech community is going to do with it whatever it wants and. In in some cases, that leads to a discrepancy in meaning between the the two languages. But that is a normal part of borrowing. That's nothing uh, uh, extraordinary. That is not something you can stop. That is not something you... It's something you might be concerned about in one particular context. Namely, this is obviously one process that creates so-called false friends. So people might think that they know how to use the word public viewing in English because they're using it in German in a particular way. And that is something that you have to address in the English language classroom, certainly.
3: And that's I don't know, I suppose you could agree with me that um, Germans vastly overestimate their grasp of English. Huh?
2: I don't know of any study that shows this, but there is a danger, and it's not just with loanwords. Whenever you have two words that are similar in, in, in your own language and in a foreign language, you might, uh, you know, transfer the meaning or the way the word is used in your language, you might transfer it to the foreign language, and that might lead to comical effects, but that's just, you know... It's something you have to do. It's like the word become. Low-level English speakers whose native language is German will use the verb become in English uh, in a way that doesn't correspond to its meaning. And that's not because become in German is a loan word. The, The two words have the same etymological source. They just developed very differently in the two languages. And it's this kind of an effect. And it's certainly something English teachers have to be aware of.
0: Oliver, I wanted to ask you, don't languages evolve normally anyway? We certainly speak a different English today than what was spoken during the Middle Ages, for example. So why should it be any different for German?
3: Uh, I have a bit of a problem with saying that languages evolve as if they were uh, living beings. I don't think a language is a living being at all. It is created by us, it is used, it is abused by us. We develop the language, you and I. So uh, we have a responsibility, you know. I don't think uh, saying good or bad fits us anywhere with it. I mean, let me paraphrase, to put it in a more global context, let me paraphrase David Crystal, which I'm sure Anatole knows. world well, language is not English, but bad English. So what follows from that, you know, that's the kind of question we have to ask ourselves in the context of globalization.
2: The fact that global English uh, is not any particular national variety of English, but it's sort of an emergent variety that is itself influenced by all the background languages that speakers bring to it. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. Right. That is a problem primarily for English speakers who think that yeah. they can speak American English or British English in a global context and will simply be understood. I mean, English is such a heterogeneous language. Even if you just take um, the established varieties, that uh, global English doesn't really add to it in in a qualitatively new way. It, it is a system of communication that everybody. Who uses it has to somehow adapt, uh, and that goes for native speakers of English uh, just as it goes for non native speakers of English.
0: I want to t- go back to something both of you touched on, which was the grammar, you know, how this affects grammar when you have the importation uh, of English into German. For example, the 2021 Anglicismus word of the year was Buston you know, to boost your shots, I guess, uh, is what that's derived from. A bussen is not how you would say it in English, and it doesn't even really make sense in German. Talk to me a little bit about that, about how does the grammar get warped, or let's let's explore that a little bit further. And let me ask Oliver first.
3: Well, let me give you an example that uh, I come across here at Dortmunds. How do you cope with the big sign on the freeway that says, uh, Reißverschluss erst nach 600 Meter"? I'm, I'm sure you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the
0: zipper, yeah, no, the zipper, like the way you pull into traffic.
3: Right, now that sign. Now, how are you going to cope with that unless you really know some German? And now we have 22 millions of new citizens. A lot of them have arrived recently. And the first thing they've got to learn is German, not English. And I think they get confused by what we do with uh, uh, in, in borrowing a bit too much, too fast, too superficially from English. We're not helping them. They first have to learn German because otherwise they can't participate in society. They can't negotiate with authorities. They can't find a job.
0: So, but wouldn't that be an argument for more English and German? If you're worried about the person on the highway, not knowing that a Reisverschluss refers to the zipper. In other words, people taking turns and and merging onto traffic.
3: Well, it would be most comfortable if we could all learn English and forget about our mother tongues, sure. Except it's going to take several generations. How are we going to do that? It's impractical. It doesn't work. And people are not going to go along with it, you know.
2: Uh, It's an interesting argument because, um, you know, why is it so important for new immigrants to Germany to learn German? That's because Germany still insists to some extent on a sort of a monolingual self-presentation. It doesn't allow, uh, except in very special cases, other languages when you're dealing with the authorities. But that is a choice that German society makes and it could change that at any time. If we were to accept that we are and have been for a long time, but are certainly now becoming a society of migrants as well as people who were born here, then we could say maybe this monolingual self-image is something we have to give up. I mean, uh, other countries do this. In uh, the United States, you can take your driver's license in 50. In, in some states, you can take it in 50 different languages. Um, nobody thinks that People have to speak English in order to, you know, take the first steps into American society. At some point they're going to have to learn it in most states, you know, to function, to take part in everyday life. And that is certainly true of Germany too. But it's interesting that we choose to make a society linguistically more accessible or less accessible. Now, this has nothing to do with borrowing English words into German because, of course, the people learning German are going to learn The words that we teach them and they're not going to be easier or more difficult depending on whether they're loanwords or whether they were created from German language material. So you know learning a language is uh, no more difficult if it contains English loanwords than if it doesn't.
0: We're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll talk more about how Denglish is affecting immigrants and refugees as well as younger Germans. Stay tuned.
1: I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps and discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding The Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern time on WPFW 89.3
0: FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi nelson And I'm the senior producer, Dina Elsaid. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback and join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin.
1: The Germany Experience Podcast, where foreigners share their experiences of living in Germany.
0: Supermarkets here drive me insane. But I just said, what are you staring at?
3: No, stop it. Stop it. She's
1: crying. There was a shepherd leading a flock of sheep
3: (laughs) down the street. And they give us some advice. Find ways to stay connected to home. Learn how to
1: drive through the roadworks. If you really want to connect with people, learning the language is the key to that. The Germany Experience Podcast. Life in Germany through the eyes of outsiders.
0: Welcome back to Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya sarhadi Nelson, and my guests are Anatole Stefanovic, an English linguistics professor at the Free University of Berlin, and Oliver Baer of the Verein Deutsche Sprache, or German Language Society, We've been talking about English words and phrases creeping into German and creating a mixed language commonly referred to in Germany as Denglisch. You hear it especially among younger Germans. Last year's German youth word of the year was cringe, for example. Oliver, why is it more prevalent among youth? And is that a problem in your opinion uh, that words like cringe become German, as it were?
3: Well, I think uh, the word cringe is a bit of a bad example because uh, it wasn't chosen by a representative sample of youth, you know. On the other hand, it's a good example because we have a much nicer word in German, fremdschämen, to feel embarrassed about someone else making a fool of himself. I think it's very beautiful, fremdschämen, and cringe was not representative. So I, I tend to not worry about the German youth word of the year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what about you, Anatole? What does that say to you?
2: Well, I, I'm not even sure whether young people use English words uh, at a higher rate than the average uh, speaker, but uh, certainly young people are linguistically more open. I mean, cringe is a uh, was actually a well-chosen uh, youth word of the year because it was a word that young people actually used. I don't know if they still do because youth language tends to change very quickly. Uh, very often in the past... Uh, words were chosen that no young person had ever heard of. Now, um, there are, you know, young people use words from uh, other migrant languages. They, um, they are more creative within the German language. I mean, youth language is a very creative thing. It's a very short-lived kind of a thing. Very few of these words actually make it into the general language. And so I think it's interesting, you know, young people maybe less set in their linguistic ways, uh, you know, exploring all the things that you can do with language. Uh, I don't see how that
3: can be a bad thing.
0: Go ahead, yeah. Oliver. You wanted you wanted to add something to that.
3: Most of the time, it's funny and it, it enriches our language really because uh, uh, yeah, it's creative. Good.
0: Well, it's creative, but it's also annoying. I'll say this this was one I think I brought up with Anatole as well some years back when I did a story about Denglish, and that was the word sorry, you know, sorry, people saying sorry. Here in Berlin, I find that it's younger people who tend to do it, and it doesn't mean in it doesn't mean that they're sorry at all. Like if somebody steps in front of you, for example, on the U-Bahn, you know, on the subway, <laughs> they might say sorry, and they don't really mean it. Oliver, you mentioned that it was creative and, you know, that there are some positives to it, but it, are there also negatives to it? That, I mean, you had mentioned handy, for example, Anatole, but, uh, you know, is what are some of the negatives of these words that end up getting adopted?
2: Well, with the word sorry, I don't really see any negatives. I mean, that is exactly the way that the word sorry is used in English, I think, in particular in American English. You know, people saying sorry all the time, even if they walk past you, uh, if, if they feel they've, they're a little bit too close to you, they will already say sorry um, in some parts of the United States at least. And so it's sort of like a low-grade version of what Entschuldigung or Entschuldigen Sie bitte would mean. Uh, it, you're right. It's not really an apology. It's just an acknowledgement that you may have caused a, a minor inconvenience to someone. It's sort of acknowledging, I've seen that you're there. I'm not really sorry because I have nothing to be sorry for, um, but I do want to acknowledge that I've inconvenienced you. And a German doesn't really have a word that expresses that. And I think that is part of why uh, sorry is so successful. Not just, I mean, sorry is c- kind of like, okay, it's probably one of the most successful loanwords globally, from English it doesn't force you into any kind of true interpersonal relationship with the person you're apologizing to it also makes it easy for that person to say don't worry whereas if they if you say entschuldigung then they might say uh, you know they might feel that they have to explain to you that you have nothing to apologize for you you know this is a stranger you don't want to have a relationship with them you just want to say I didn't notice you. Uh, Now I have, uh, I want to tell you that this was not intentional. You know, that's, that's basically what it means. It might be annoying to you. (laughs) I mean, that's interesting because I mean, in, in a sense, that would be interesting to see the perspective of an English speaker in Germany on this phenomenon, because I think you will have a very different perspective. I mean, you're looking at it from the other side. So you might feel irritations that, um, that we don't feel because for us the word sorry is just a word that we borrowed for a particular purpose and that's what we use it for and we don't have the kind of richer associations that you're going to have um, because it's part of your native language and you've experienced it in many more different Situations and social configurations, and you know, you know how you can elaborate on this word in different ways, and none of that is part of the German word "sorry," of course.
0: Part of the problem for me is that "sorry" takes away the formality of German, uh, and that's a language that I was taught by my Oma and my German mother. So, I mean, to me, that's sort of taking something away from the language the way I learned it. But you're right; part of it is also just the pronunciation, because it's not "sorry," it's "sorry." (laughs) If you're going to say it, say it right. Is sort of the feeling that I have. But Um. it
2: must be painful for you to live in Berlin (laughs) if you. <laughs> or if you're into German formality, because that's really a thing of the past. I it, think. it is. Yes, it is.
0: And it makes it shows my age, I think. I don't know how Oliver feels about it. I think, uh, Oliver, uh, you know, how do you feel? Do you think that Denglish takes away from the formality of German? And is that a problem for you?
3: No, I don't see a problem there.
0: No. <laughs> so <laughs> I, it's just I my understand. problem. OK. <laughs> I,
3: I do understand that you uh, you use the word sorry, sorry. Um, Differently in America, and we can see it in your Hollywood films. You know, um, I have nothing to do with your problem, but I still say, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's not in German, that's only in your language. You know,
0: <laughs> blame it on the Americans, that's okay. <laughs> That's not a problem. So we were talking a little bit about immigrants before as well. And I'm wondering how the arrival of so many immigrants and refugees in in recent years has affected Danglish. I mean, are there other languages that are starting to be taken into German? Or is English still the main one? Or I mean, is it diluting it in some way? Or how does Danglish play a role in the immigrant community?
2: Well, it's interesting that even from the major uh, major immigrant languages in Germany, very few words uh, ever make it. I mean, I, I can't think of any actually that that have made it into the general language. They do sometimes make it into user language, as I said, because, of course, uh, the proportion of uh, immigrants among young people is much higher. But, you know, the, the dominant role of English is really because it is the language of globalization. It's really because anything that, uh, you know, we're sort of, changing together, we're inventing new things together, uh, good things and bad things globally. And we always talk about them first in English because that is the global language and that's how we get the first label for something. Uh, You know, it doesn't always stick around, but it's kind of useful. Whereas I don't really see how how, uh, immigrant languages could be useful in supplying... Linguistic material to German. So, if you think about this purely in terms of usefulness, then uh, English is useful precisely because it is the language of uh, globalization—in not just economic globalization, but cultural globalization. The, the fact that we're living in a world that's moving ever closer together.
3: Uh, Anatol, I think you're quite right linguistically, but there's a sociological problem in this. You know, if we say "refugees are welcome" in English. And most of these refugees do not speak English at all. The Syrians don't, the Afghans don't, The uh, most of the Ukrainians don't, etc., etc. So I think we really uh, have a problem there if we think we can use the global language to deal with that problem. You know?
2: That's not really my experience, especially the Syrians and the Ukrainians uh, come from countries that have educational systems that were very similar to our German educational or to the European educational systems. And typically English is an important foreign language in these countries. I don't know about the Afghans, it's probably different there. But, you know, English is a language that many of these refugees speak much better than they speak German. And so I think it might be useful to use it, not just in welcoming them, but also in helping them get settled. You know, if they don't speak English, I think it would be nice if we really are as welcoming as we like to think we are is, of course, to welcome them in their own language. But unfortunately, Germans aren't the linguistically most skilled speech community either. So there are very few non-Arabic, uh, you know, people of Arabic descent might speak Arabic, but very few uh, other Germans will. Uh, the same with Slavic languages. We have two three four Slavic languages that are really big in terms of the community that speaks them in Germany but Germans don't usually speak Slavic languages we've had turkish uh, immigration since the 1970s it's the largest community it's a language that's been with us for 50 years and it's not taught at a single german school uh, you know non turkish heritage germans just don't learn turkish and so you can see we we don't really um you know i think welcoming people becoming a more global society is something that should go both ways and i think it's good that at least english is becoming It's becoming a a more normal thing to use English to switch to English when you feel that you're speaking to somebody and German doesn't cut it. I mean, it's funny that in Berlin, very often people will address you in in cafes if they are in an area where there are a lot of tourists. They will address you in English first, and then only if you reply in German, they will switch to German. And I think that's nice because it's sort of maximizing the degree to which people are going to feel that they're welcome.
3: Well, Anatol, you're not confusing Berlin with the rest of Germany, are you?
1: (laughs) I was well, waiting Berlin, for that. <laughs>
2: Berlin is always leading. The, Berlin has been leading the way in good ways and in bad ways for a long time. And I think it's going to stay that
3: way.
0: So does that not happen in Dortmund? Oh, Do people not speak English to you uh, in Dortmund?
3: Hang on, hang on. We've actually been committed to teaching the immigrants some Germans so that they can cope with society as it is, not as Anatole would like it to be, you know. And English was no help there. The occasional English speaker is typically the one that gets interviewed at the station because he can speak English. Most of them cannot, and that's a fact, you know. So uh, we can't, you can't expect us to learn Turkish and Arabic and Czech and Ukrainian, etc., etc. It doesn't work like that. Uh, the lingua franca in this country is still German, and to change that it would take generations, and it's an abstract. It doesn't work.
0: Oliver, let me ask you along those lines. Some countries in Europe have an official agency, or not just in Europe, it probably goes beyond that, have an official agency or organization that works on preserving the local language. In France, for example, it's the Académie Française, which has been around for hundreds of years. So why not have one for German here in Germany?
3: (laughs) Yeah, some people, I think we have a lot of members in our Verein who would like that, but... uh... I don't think it fits, the, it, it, it matches the mindset of Germans. Uh, France has been a centralised country for centuries. Uh, uh, Germany hasn't. So we don't have a mindset that would allow uh, an Académie allem- allemande. That doesn't work.
2: I agree, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to say that this is something <laughs> that we agree on uh, totally. It's very surprising because Germans are at least stereotypically known for, for loving rules and regulations and regulatory agencies. So it's very interesting that they've never set up an academy uh, that in, in the domain of language, they uh, you know, Germans don't seem to want uh, this uh, central authority because if they did, I mean, the Académie Française, I think, was founded in 1635 or something. It's a long time ago. The German speech community had has had an opportunity to form an academy like this uh, you know, for centuries, and they haven't done so. And I think you're right. It's not the German mindset, uh, which I think, again, is nice. It's nice to see that Germans, for once, uh, are not in favor of regulating everything to death.
3: In France, if you're not in Paris, you're nowhere. In Germany, you don't have to be in Berlin.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. And, and, you, should you, you should be. You should be. But it's for your own good. If you don't want to be, uh, you know, you don't have to.
3: I, I don't say I have lots of friends in Berlin?
0: Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask both of you as a closing thought. What, if any, steps should Germans take to preserve their language, to protect it from Denglish or whatever other influences might be there? And I'll let Anatole start, and then Oliver can close it out. Go ahead.
2: Okay. You know, German is... Uh... Large language, it's spoken as a native language by more than 100 million people. It's very much alive. It's a very vigorous language. It integrates borrowed material very effortlessly into its own grammatical system. It creates new grammar and new vocabulary from its own resources all the time. I don't really think we need to be worried about German. I think what we could do out of a sort of an economic, cultural, self-interest is to. Promote German as a foreign language in other countries because it's certainly been shrinking. Uh, you know, the number of people learning it as a foreign language has been shrinking for a while. But the best way to do this, of course, is to have attractive language material. When Tokyo Hotel, the band Tokyo Hotel, was um, at its peak popularity, uh, you know, young people uh, in many countries wanted to learn German. They didn't have to be forced or convinced. They wanted to learn German because they wanted to understand these uh, lyrics. And so I think, you know, we can just focus uh, on on creating interesting culture, and then pe- uh, in German, and then people will want to learn German in order to participate in this.
0: Oliver, what do you think? What do we need to do to preserve German?
3: Let's not forget we uh, have a drastic reduction of German in school curricula. Um, I think it's quite important to uh, remember that uh, you need good German to learn physics, uh, bionics, climate change, whatever. And you need good German to learn good English, you know. So um, we're making a mistake there. I'd like to give you my favorite English word, and that's serendipity.
0: <laughs> okay. Why is it uh, your favorite word?
3: Ah, I think it's just beautiful. <laughs> the, the faculty to make discoveries not sought for. That's gorgeous
2: and of course no, I love uh, English
3: but let me let me close on one uh, with one thing I personally I don't dislike borrowed words at all um, I dabble in polish and in Czech and in French and in Swedish however in my publishing I tend to look for an, a, a German word before I use a borrowed word simply because it has a different temperature foreign words very often, sound clinical uh, cold and it's worth looking for a word that is more appropriate to what I want to say that's part of my appreciation of my mother tongue and I think we should maintain that kind of thing
0: Well, fascinating discussion, but we'll have to leave it there. Uh, That was Oliver Beer of the Verein Deutsche Sprache, or German Language Society, and my other guest was Anatol Stefanovic, an English linguistics professor at the Free University of Berlin. Vielen Dank to both of you for being on the show.
2: Sehr gern.
3: Thank you.
0: (laughs) And thank you for listening to our podcast. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CGBerlinPodcast. If you're on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to and rate our podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, CommonGroundBerlin.com.